0: Luke chapter 17 this morning. As we've been in this section of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been talking about salvation, the narrow road. He's been talking about discipleship, the cost of of following him wholeheartedly. He's also been talking about stewardship. And as we move into chapter 17, keep in mind that in the previous chapter that we covered over the last couple of weeks, Jesus was talking to his disciples about that very thing about stewardship. He's talking to them about investing in the future, what has been entrusted to you. And specifically, he was talking about using your money wisely, investing in the kingdom of God, investing in the, uh, the eternal things. And he was warning them about getting to where money in possessions and wealth would be a priority in their lives. And the religious leaders, as we saw that Jesus speaking that parable, the unjust steward to his disciples, but the religious leaders, we were told, are listening in on that parable. And Jesus would sum up the parable by saying this: that you cannot serve both God and mammon, because you're going to end up hating the one and you're going to love the other. And the Pharisees, we are told in verse 14 of chapter 16, they were lovers of money. And when they heard Jesus tell those things, that parable, to the disciples, they began to deride him. That is, they stuck up their noses at him. They sneered him, might be in some of your translations, because the Pharisees were very much caught up in their material prosperity. They were caught up into their materialism and wealth, and they believed that if you were wealthy, that was a sign of spirituality. To, To be wealthy, which most of them, the Pharisees were in their day, they said it was because of our righteousness, because we are spiritual, because we have been you know, approved by God. And, and so Jesus says, hey, God sees your heart and he sees our hearts as well. And what men esteems highly, God sees as an abomination in his sight. And in Jesus, in indicting those religious leaders, he is not indicting them for having money. But he is indicting them for their love of money, being a priority over their love for God. Jesus did not say that you cannot have both God and money. He said you cannot serve both God and money. And certainly Jesus was talking about the heart. He says God knows your heart. So when Jesus is teaching about these things and investing in eternity, telling that parable of the unjust steward. There is chapter 16 that started it out with there is a certain rich man. And we know that that rich man, that he knew the importance of investing in the future, of of investing and being wise in the things that you have relative to the future. And the Pharisees didn't like that. They derided Jesus. They turned up their noses at him is what that word literally means. And so Jesus now talking to his disciples in chapter 17, after dealing with those Pharisees and dealing with them as also, as we saw last week in verses 19 through 31 that he would tell the story of another rich man. This second rich man of chapter 16 did not think about the future. He did not invest in the future. He only lived for himself. He did not thank God. He did not believe in God. He gave no acknowledgement to God. And we read in chapter 17, verse 1, then, that is after he tells that story of Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus being the beggar, he would die. He would go to that place of paradise, Abraham's bosom, and then the rich man, he would die and he went to the place of torments in Hades, the, the place of the unrighteous dead, and we looked at that very carefully. And we also discussed that the rich man didn't go to Hades because he was rich. It was not a story that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven, but he did not acknowledge God. He did not believe God because Abraham, who was on the other side as Lazarus, Was in Abraham's bosom. He was wealthy, but yet he was a friend of God, and he believed God, Genesis chapter 15, and it was accounted to him. For righteousness. So these Pharisees that got uh, Jesus is dealing with their hearts. After he tells that story, we read in chapter 17, then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him uh, through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, you might be thinking, that's pretty heavy. I should have stayed home this morning because it is very sobering what Jesus is saying. So Jesus talking to his disciples about commenting on the Pharisees who were standing nearby, those who were coming against him in his ministry. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, listen, there are going to be those that will offend you. Offenses are going to come. And I just wonder if he's kind of glancing over there at those religious leaders. And that word offense, it might be in your margins, a stumbling block. A lot of times in the New Testament, it is translated in that way. It is the ancient Greek word skandalon. And it is that part of the trap that the bait would be attached to. So when the animal came up, to eat that bait, it would trap them. It would ensnare them. And and that's what Jesus is saying, that there's going to be offenses, scandalon. And Jesus is saying that if you follow me and you are living for me in this world, you're going to have offenses come your way. You're going to have people that are going to come along who will seek to put stumbling stones to ensnare you in your faith as you journey through life. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. The religious leaders were trying to keep people from coming to the Messiah. They were bullying and threatening the people. And Jesus is saying it's going to happen. It is impossible to live your life without having these things happen. These offenses, these stumbling stones will be there as people come and they challenge your faith as people mock you and ridicule you for what you believe As you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is telling us in our lives it's going to happen. You cannot live your life without having these stumbling stones placed in your path. And I think that a lot of us, if not most of us, we've experienced that in our lives, haven't we? It's come our way. Maybe it happened in the the high school or college classroom. Maybe it's happened by those at work or those in your family or others. They tell you that you're just religious, that Jesus is not real, that the Bible isn't true, that you are a fool. We've had family members tell us you're a fool for what you believe in and serving in the way that you do. And they will try to get you all snared and tripped up over what you believe in and who you believe in. And that is Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for my salvation. We know that when we come to Christ, that those of the world, for the most part, aren't going to say, well, that's just wonderful. And, and that's just, you know, a, a beautiful thing. A lot of times the reaction of those in the world is that they will be cynical and hostile towards us. And keep in mind that it was Jesus that said that the world's going to hate you because it first hated me. So these offenses are going to come. But then Jesus said something very very sobering. He said in verse 2, Woe to that person who puts the stumbling stone there. It would be better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea. Then he should offend one of these little ones. The one who, of course, uh, is talking about here, not just a little one in chronological age, but also one who is young in the Lord here. To cause one of these little ones to stumble is a very serious thing to tamper with somebody's faith in Jesus Christ. To seek to put a stumbling stone or a block in their faith of Jesus Christ. And Jesus here would say the same thing when he was up in the Galilee region. You might remember that he was in Capernaum and he actually used a child as an illustration. And he said, if you cause one of these little ones here to stumble, be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you cast into the sea. Now, here's the thing. Jesus didn't say that that will happen. He said it'd be better if that happened. That's the better option. He said, woe to you. He doesn't tell us what the woe is. Now we know what a millstone is because a few weeks ago, when I was showing you slides of Israel that we took in February, that in Capernaum, they've excavated a whole bunch of these millstones. And there's two different sizes. There's the small one that a lot of people had that they used to crush olives or to crush grain. And it's about two feet high, three feet high, donut-shaped. It was made out of that volcanic rock that's all around the the hills there of Galilee because there's actually a, a series of 11 volcanoes that are up there in that area and they're dormant, they're not active, but there's a lot of volcanic rock. And so they made these, these millstones, which is a donut shaped stone, weighed about anywhere 50 to hundred pounds that they would use. And I imagine when Jesus is in Capernaum and he uses that child as an illustration, he, he's saying it'd be better that that millstone, cause they were all over the place, be hung around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea. But there is also another size, a bigger one, that would be hooked up to an ox. And that ox would go around in a circle and tread the, the grain and used again for larger quantities of grain, for, also for olives, and crushing that. And that would be the larger millstone, even higher than this pulpit. And it would be very heavy. It would weigh about 500 pounds. Now, a lot of scholars believe that what Jesus is talking about is the larger millstone. But I'm, I'm thinking, does it really make any difference? Because if you had a 100-pound millstone hung around your neck or a 500-pound millstone hung around your neck, you're going to go down quickly in the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus says it'd be better if that happened. He doesn't say what the woe is, but he did just get through telling the story of Lazarus and the rich man that was in torments, plural, of Hades. You see, when Jesus says "woe," again, it is a very sobering thing. It was not a good thing whatsoever. And as we consider this this morning, I think it's important for us as believers that we present the gospel very clearly, not in a judgmental way, not in a complex way. The gospel can be received by a child, and that's why we place such an important emphasis and priority in our children's ministry here. So those kids that are very precious in those rooms over there are receiving the gospel and receiving God's word at their level that a child can receive it, can understand it. That's why I'm asking you to be praying For the outreach of Vacation Bible School, we don't just see it as just an activity. We don't see children's ministry as just child care or, you know, like that. We see it as an opportunity to reach these children for Jesus Christ because the studies show that most people come, not all, but majority people come when they're to Christ when they're young. And a child is, is they're willing to receive the gospel. You see, what happens, we get older and we get more cynical. We get more hard. But we want to present it very clearly to them. And we have children that come to Christ in our children's ministry at Vacation Bible School. And I know that the Lord desires to do that work. So be praying. We want to reach them. We want to give them the gospel. They can understand the gospel that all of us have sinned. And Jesus, who lived a perfect life, came, the Son of God, and died for our sins. And he provided forgiveness by shedding his blood on the cross. He was put into a grave. He rose again after three days. He proved that he was the Son of God by conquering sin and death. And now as we come to him in faith, putting our faith and trust in him, we have forgiveness of sin. (laughs) And we have eternal life. And we have right relationship with the Father. They can understand that. Now the Pharisees that are here sticking up their noses at Jesus and mocking him and coming against him, trying to find a reason to accuse him, they made everything so complicated and they were keeping people from coming to God. They had made the word of God of no effect, is what Jesus said. In your religiousness and in your pseudo-spirituality, And matter of fact, the Pharisees had been saying, the religious leaders, that anybody who comes to Jesus, that they're going to be excommunicated. We see in John chapter 9 that they would throw that man who was born blind, who came to faith in Jesus after he was healed, that they excommunicated him. And we know from John chapter five that that man was healed at the pool at Bethesda, that it was the religious leaders that were spreading the news. Hey, you come to believe in Jesus that you're going to be excommunicated. And that was a scary thing back then to be bullied and threatened and intimidated to say that you cannot go to synagogue. You cannot come to the temple to worship. You would be ostracized in society. You would be an outcast. You couldn't work for anybody. Your family would have a funeral for you that, you know, determining that you're dead to them. It was a very scary thing. And they were keeping people from coming to Christ. And Jesus said that, woe to you. Matter of fact, After this, in Matthew chapter 23, right before Jesus went to the cross, he gives a series of eight woes in Matthew chapter 23. And you can read all the woes that Jesus pronounced on the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, for you bind heavy burdens hard to bear on men. And Jesus then gives that long list of indictments against them. There are those today that will put a scandal on in front of believers to stumble them, to ensnare them. They deliberately stumble young ones. And heaven is so serious about that that the preferral treatment is that a millstone be hung around your neck and cast into the sea. It can happen in the classroom, We've had high schoolers and college students come to us and say, you know, that there are those who came against me in the classroom or, you know, they they told me I was stupid and naive to believe in Jesus for salvation. It can come by family members and friends that will mock you because you believe in Jesus. You believe your Bible. We've had kids that have come to Christ and their parents, you know, just make fun of them. Or that's just a phase that you're going through. Or maybe a spouse that that really puts the pressure on you. And maybe a husband that says that, you know what? As he's angry that you come to Christ and you want to go to church and lays down the ultimatum. No more church and no more of this Jesus stuff. Maybe a relative, those at work, that you're the religious one. And they come against you and they make fun of you. It is going to happen. It is going to happen. And unfortunately, it even happens from those who are behind the pulpit. And unfortunately, there is more and more those who are behind the pulpit that are saying, well, the Bible really isn't inspired. They question the infallibility, the inspiration, and the authority of God's Word. They tell you that the stories are not true. You can't believe the Bible, that the virgin birth of Jesus is false, and the physical resurrection of Jesus really didn't happen. And Jesus is not the Son of God. He's just another great religious leader. And so Jesus, talking about these offenses, he is talking about stumbling blocks— are going to happen. And then as we continue in verse 3, he's going to talk about what our response is going to be. Now, he starts out verse 3, take heed to yourselves. And he's going to talk about the one who comes, a brother who sins against you. Now in verses 1 and 2, as we read this, don't cause one of these little ones to stumble. And as we read it, you know, commentators, Bible scholars... You know, are saying that, that, listen, as he's talking about it, better that a millstone be hung around your neck and dumped into the sea, that we have to presume that the sinning here refers to, in the context, a lack of faith in the Messiah. Again, that's what the religious leaders were doing, bullying the people, saying, don't believe in him. We'll come against him. The Pharisees keeping people from the kingdom of God. But with that said, take heed to yourselves, take heed to yourselves. We're going to talk about what our response is, is when a brother sins against you. But also taking heed to yourself means, listen, that you don't lead anybody else into sin. And especially somebody who is young in the Lord, but anybody. Listen, I know that I might step on a few toes here, but I say this out of love and I say this because I believe it's important for us to consider. That there are those who can come to church. And they've come for a number of years. Or they are raised in a Christian home. Or you know had Christian parents. Whatever it is. It does not mean that you're walking in obedience. And sometimes very subtly we can think. Oh you know what I'm okay because I'm going to church. Or I belong to a Christian church family or whatever the case may be but are you walking in that obedience are you living a life where you are stumbling others that you're leading others into sin those who perhaps are young in their faith are you involved in sexual immorality with your boyfriend with your girlfriend are you involved in an adulterous relationship are you involved in, in saying hey man why don't you come and party with us and let's drink and let's take drugs or let's watch pornography, whatever the case may be? We even read in the scriptures that Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, and he also writes in the book of Romans, that you make sure that you're not stumbling the weaker brother and sister, even in your liberty and our sensitivity and love you don't want to do that. And those areas where you feel like that you have liberty, don't stumble the weaker brother or sister in that, but you're to be ones that show sensitivity and love. And so if we are ever in that place where we are leading others into sin, whatever it might be, we need to stop and we need to repent of it because it's not the loving thing to do. So take heed to yourself. But also, when the brother comes and sins against you, how is it that you're going to respond? Let's read it again. Take heed to yourselves, verse 3. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, return to you, returns to you and saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So take heed to yourselves and how you interact with others and also in forgiving others. Make sure that you're doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. And if your brother sins against you, you are to rebuke him. When someone sins against us, we are being told what it is that we are to do, how to respond. Because, see, we can have a tendency to hold a grudge. Or I'm going to place it on social media. I'm going to, to, to do this. I'm going to put it all over Facebook. I've seen it over and over again where someone made a mistake or someone did something wrong or hurt somebody and then it gets plastered all over social media and it is ruthless. Can you imagine if these 12 had a smartphone and they had social media? You know, there's Jesus telling, you know, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And the other guys are going, oh, I can't wait to put this on, you know. Nah, Peter, he messed up again. He denied the Lord. And let's put it on Facebook and they have this discussion on it and all of this. So the tendency can be to do that for everyone to see or to gather a posse around you. I got to get everybody on my side. And I have to be honest. That is the way that a lot of times conflicts are handled when we end up being hurt. And we end up holding a grudge And we tell others what happened to us, but it is the wrong approach. Take heed to yourselves. That's what the Lord is saying. And we have to continually be on guard against our fleshy response. When your brother, Jesus says, if your brother, uh, I don't know the if brother, it's when. Because it's going to happen sooner or later. And we will upset people because none of us are perfect. We say things and do things that can upset another brother or sister. And when it happens, when the offenses come, you are to give a loving rebuke when it comes to you. And if he or she repents, then forgive them. And we do that because we want to encourage others to repent and do what is right and restore relationships with one another and with the Lord most of all. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 that we are to speak the truth in love. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, not in the spirit of meanness. In Matthew chapter 18, there's a model given to us by Jesus. If a person sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, responds to you, then good, you've gained your brother. You see, that is the goal is not to prove who is right. And if he doesn't hear you, then take a witness with you. But Jesus here telling us, if he sins against you seven times in a day, that I am to forgive. Now, I have to be real honest with you that God is still working this in me. I know that I'm preaching to myself this morning. But we do know that this is not easy. The commandment given to us to forgive. And I've always said this, I think one of the hardest things that the Lord has asked us to do and commanded us to do is to forgive, especially when we really have been hurt, when we've been cut deep. And I know that there have been many that have passed through the services this morning that you have been offended, you have been hurt, you've been cut deep and sinned against. And as you read the words of Jesus, you're thinking, how is it that I can forgive? How is it that I can forgive? I think the apostles were thinking that. They knew it was very hard and difficult. Because we read in verse 5, and the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Interesting, they didn't say increase our love. They said increase our faith. And we understand as Christians that forgiveness is not just a cheap exchange of words that we can flippantly say, you know, like two little boys that got in a fight and the mom say, okay, Billy, say you're sorry to Tommy. And Okay, I'm sorry, you know. I think I, I like what Warren Worsby, as he was commenting on this subject, he said that true forgiveness always involves pain because someone has been hurt. And it takes faith in our Lord to help us do what otherwise really is impossible to do. And I know that as we go to the Lord, that we need the Lord's help. And it has to be a supernatural work of the Lord. Lord, help me to forgive. And we have to do it over and over and bit by bit and day by day. And I give it to you, Lord, and help me to forgive. Because, see, we want to hold grudges. We want to get even. We become full of bitterness and anger. I want to be vengeful. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, that you be careful because you can't handle it. And I don't want to minimize the hurt that it causes when somebody has really cut you deep. But forgiveness is a choice that we are to make. And as you choose to forgive, you're not saying, well, what you did was not wrong or you know, just overlooking what somebody did or just allowing yourself to be walked on like a doormat. Jesus says if they do it seven times in a day and ask for forgiveness, I think what he's saying is always be ready to forgive. And I think somebody comes seven times in a day They're not being very sincere, are they? But he doesn't say you need to know the motive. He says you're to forgive. Listen, if I don't forgive, what happens is I get all bound up in bitterness and in anger and it consumes me. It takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? Out of me and out of you, if you're angry at someone, at someone's, at a situation and you think about it and you stew and you're full of wrath and you know what happens, then that person that you are not forgiving has power over you. Because you're thinking that person is a dirty rat and, and, and it consumes us. And Jesus wants us to be free from all of that. But I also know that it has to be a supernatural work that he has to do. Lord, increase my faith. Faith that God is going to work in my heart. And he's going to honor me as I do what God has asked me to do. And he will deal with that person. He will deal with that situation. And that he will bring protection and resolve the situation and restore whatever the case may be. And listen, over the years of ministry, I have been burnt. And I have been attacked. And I know that I have to forgive. Because if I don't forgive. I wouldn't be behind this pulpit. I couldn't do my ministry. And I can struggle just like any of you can. But I have to turn to the Lord. And I have to trust him. And ask him for help. And. And to realize that he will take care of it one way or another. I am to have faith in you, Father. And we see that with David over and over again in the Psalms. That's why I keep going back in my readings to the Psalms over and over again. Because David would talk about the whole nation of Israel. Men coming against him. And those who lied about him. And those who tried to kill him. And all of this. And he would talk about that and the struggles that he had. But then he always turned his attention back to the Lord. And Lord, you're my protector. You're you're my strength. Even though they lay a trap for me, Lord, I know that it won't happen, that, that you will deliver me. Lord, you're everything that I need. Lord, increase my faith is what we pray. Lord, help me. And so the Lord in verse six said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by its roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Forgiving someone who offends and hurt is not only a test of love, but it is a test of our faith. And Jesus says that if you have faith as a mustard seed, which was the smallest seed in Israel, the mustard seed being very small, but it has life in it, doesn't it? And it can grow and it can produce fruit. You see, our faith is not dead. James would write that in chapter two of his epistle. It is a working faith. It is a living faith in the living Savior who's going to work in our lives. And as we continue in the word and in prayer and trusting God and relying on Him, then our faith grows, and that faith is activated and we'll be able to do what He's called us to do. What God can do is we put our faith in Him. Now, the mulberry tree had the deepest roots of any tree in the Middle East. And you can cut down a mulberry tree and the roots would live for hundreds of years. Matter of fact, it just keeps, you know, suckering back. So the mulberry tree was famous for its ability to survive and never be uprooted. And Jesus takes these two extremes here and he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed and you say to that mulberry tree, be pulled up and cast into the sea, what is Jesus saying here? Because sometimes in the charismatic circles of the church or the prosperity guys, you know, Mark records that Jesus said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, tell the mountain to be cast into the sea. And you have, you know, some that are behind the pulpit saying, "You gotta have faith. You gotta increase your faith in the Lord and cast a mountain and." You know, he's sweating and he's straining and you're kind of going, ugh, you know. You just need to have more faith in that person to be healed. Or you need to just have great faith for you to be wealthy. And I have talked to so many over the years, talked to a a lady this week, a fallen victim to that, And their faith was actually shaken because they thought they didn't have enough faith for their loved one to be healed or to have that new car, that new house, or whatever the case may be. You just gotta have great faith, and, and I'm thinking, how much is enough? Jesus said, faith as a mustard seed can accomplish a lot. And yes, I want my faith to increase. Sometimes people will come to me and say, oh, Pastor Jeff, I wish I had your faith. And I'm thinking, I wish I had it too today (laughs) because (laughs) it really isn't there all that much. And I have to go to the Lord. And Jesus is not saying that you need to have great faith in God. He's saying that you need to have faith in a great God. You see, faith is not measured by its quantity, but by its object. Who is your faith in? It's not faith in faith. It's not about your great faith to cast mountains into the sea, to to get what you want. Here in the context that we know that Jesus is talking about the reality and relating to others, forgiving others, And whenever that we have that root of bitterness that is deeply rooted in our hearts, I can have faith as little as it is. Lord, help my faith, increase my faith to grow and to be alive. And I am going to water that seed of faith as small as it is with the water of the word and allow it to grow. And Lord, I'm going to call on you. And I know your promises are true for me. And you're going to strengthen me and you're going to enable me to forgive and I'm going to trust that you're going to work all things for good for those who love you and I love you somehow in some way even though I don't see how it's going to happen presently. And I can say to that tree of unforgiveness and to that mountain of difficulty that looms before me in life that I believe in you and I have faith in you And I'm going to trust in you that you are going to work blessing in my life and in the life of others. And then Jesus, not only talking about faith, but now he links it to duty in verses 7 through 10. We read as he continues, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and and drank and afterwards you will eat and drink in verse 9 does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him i think not so likewise you when you have done all these things which you are which are you are commanded say we are unprofitable servants we have done what was our duty to do so he encourages them in this area of faith but then he comes right back and it reminds them that they are servants. When a servant comes in from the field, the master doesn't say to him, oh, why don't we, you know, why don't you sit down? I'll fix you dinner and sit here while I wait on you. That's not what happens. The servant comes in from the field and he's to take care of the needs of the master and serve his master. And in this day, a servant, he understood what was to be his duty and to be faithful in doing what he was asked to do without the master gushing all over him. If the master had a gathering, the master didn't make the servant the center of attention. The servant was behind the scenes serving the master. And Jesus says, lest you get all hyped up about moving mountains and uprooting trees, keep in mind this, that you are servants and that you are to please the master in how we relate to others and forgiving others so that he would be glorified. We serve a wonderful, glorious master. And you know what's going to happen? When you get on the other side of eternity, he wants to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. He wants to reward you as we obey him because we love him. And the incredible forgiveness that's been extended to us He has done more infinitely for us than we could ever do for him. And once we understand that, you see, when I begin to be bitter and angry towards somebody and unforgiving towards somebody, that's when I know that I need to take a walk and I need to look up and I need to remember that the Lord has forgiven me over and over and over again. The incredible forgiveness that costs the father his son Because he loves me. And how can I hold a grudge and unforgiveness towards somebody else when he's forgiven me so much and given me eternal life? And to understand that I serve my master at the pleasing of the master. And Lord, help me. Because this is so difficult. And the wonderful thing is, is our master will enable you through the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he's called you to do to live a life pleasing to him. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word given to us and these these verses that can be hard for us, very convicting for us, but, Lord, very necessary. And so, Father, I do pray this morning, if there is anyone here that perhaps you're in this building or you're listening on live stream or on the radio later, that you've never giving your life to Jesus Christ. You can't do any of this without first surrendering your life to him. For you to be forgiven of your sins because all of us have sinned. And he is your salvation. Jesus came and died for all of your sins, all of your offenses against God on that cross because he loves you. And he proved that he did the work He accomplished what he did in dying for your sins by rising from the grave on the third day from that tomb. He is alive. He's the only one that did that. No one else did that. He is your salvation. There is none other. And now the word of God tells us that as you call upon him, confess that you are a sinner, surrender your life to him, that forgiveness will come, eternal life, and right relationship with the Father that only comes through Jesus. And whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If that's you, will you pray right now? Will you pray, Jesus, I come to you a sinner and I confess that I am. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died for me because you love me. And that you rose from the grave and you're alive. You're knocking on the door of my heart and I open up my heart to you for you to sit upon the throne of my life. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I come in faith. I believe that you are the Son of God. And I ask, Lord, in this new beginning that I have, did you help me to know you, to walk with you, and to obey you. Fill me with your spirit. And I thank you for this new beginning. In Jesus' name.